The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore is brought to you by our generous listener supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you appreciate what we do and would like to join them, go to dollamore.com slash PayPal or dollamore.com slash Patreon. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. Everybody, welcome to the show, and thank you again for joining us for this very special bonus episode. I'm your host, Jesse Dollamore, and I am joined today by the lovely, the talented, the scholarly, and irascible, my beautiful co-host, Brittany Page. We love <laughs> return guests to the show. I do love return guests. Yeah, it's always fun. Well, one, yeah, all of those first time jitters kind of go away yeah because some people and i don't think jim was one of them i think he he's a pro i mean he's well he travels I'm sure he's argued in front of court and done get seminars and, yeah, and speeches travels giving and, seminars yeah. yeah so he wasn't like a nervous guy mm-hmm. but it's always settled i think i can be unsettling and i think that uh it, it might take somebody a little getting used to Mm-hmm. To put up with my bullshit, as it were. Huh. I think Jim's uh, come around a little bit on the Jesse D. All right. <laughs> Didn't know we had a problem with you before. No, not a problem. Yeah, I know. We I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. So, so anyway, we have we have James yes. Robinall on the show. Enough about Jesse D. And wow. he is a Cleveland Cleveland based lawyer for the firm Thompson Hine LLP. And we had him on uh, back in April to talk about a uh, continuing legal education course that he was doing with John Dean. Former White House counsel John Dean, who effectively was kind of the the chink in the armor relative to um, Nixon going down. Yeah, so they, they do um, a CLE together, the Legacy of Watergate, Ethics of Representing an Entity Under the Current Model Rules. I don't know if that's the focus of what we talked about, but that was <laughs> no, one of was the, not. That was something we talked about. Yeah. Um, and just to give you a reminder of who he is, he has written a new book, and it is called Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's also a companion podcast that comes with the book, not comes with the book. You have to go get it separately. But <laughs> <laughs> in addition to the book, this podcast was done. There's a loose affiliation. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, it was great to talk to him. We we got an update for the prediction that he made originally for the Trump administration and how all this is going to go down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's always good to hear from him. Super smart guy. Yeah, and that's it for me. It's look, I I I I like surrounding myself with smart people. They lift you up. Well, I don't know. You know, the rising tide lifts all boats. Maybe that maybe that that is the deal, but. You know, I, I can. It's easy to hide in a crowd of smart people. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh huh. So I, I'm I, maybe it's kind of a chameleon thing hmm. for me. Okay. So I like it. I like talking to them. I like hanging around them. That's why you know, Brittany Page is around. Well, I think it's it also. Time. I think it also makes you better. Yeah, because, I think so too, for sure. Because you you want to learn from people yeah. and he can he obviously can teach us a lot of things yeah very very did. smart guy he did also i think i'm a history guy so when someone really has their finger on the pulse of history like he does and really has a, a fundamental understanding of it it's a beautiful thing mm-hmm. so what do you say let's do it let's get into this so Jim Robinald, welcome to the show sir thank you for joining us once again we know your time is valuable and we appreciate it well, I'm very happy to be back. So you wrote a book, as you mentioned last time on the show. I believe it was in April last time. Was it April? Yeah. Wow, time flies when Trump is president, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's eons ago. Um, yeah, so you were you were in the middle of writing it or at, at the tail end of writing it. And the, the title of the book, again, is uh, uh, Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yep, and it, it published on July 1. Oh, so he did just come out. That's awesome. And then yeah. I just learned minutes ago while we were at the at the coffee joint getting coffee yeah. that there's a, a six-part podcast that you've done um, in, 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 in coordination with the NBC affiliate there in Cleveland, uh, WKYC, and it's called uh, Ballots and Bullets. Ballots and Bullets, exactly. Yeah, and you can get it on iTunes, you know, with your iPhone and download them and listen to them while you drive or whatever, or SoundCloud, either one. And it is six parts. They're all about an hour each, and they are a real deep dive into this story that starts with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and goes through the terrible day of the shootout. And then the last podcast, uh, the uh, episode, the finale, uh, which is episode six, is really magnificently produced by this. It's WKYC here in, in Cleveland. And we've got sound bites from President Obama in Dallas in 2016, and then candidate Trump here in Cleveland in 2016. And then we listen to Bobby Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey. So it's a real, uh, it's a real good, uh, great production. I'm really pleased with it. Great music too. It's amazing how uh, the echoes that happened throughout history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You know, and in this this book goes back 50 years ago. There was a shootout in Cleveland between black nationalists and uh, Cleveland police. And it was a really deadly night. Ten people were killed. Uh, Fifteen were wounded. This is all in about a couple hours of time with uh, the nationalists having some long rifles, including M1s and M2s, the kind that the army used in Vietnam. Yeah. This was urban guerrilla warfare. This was black nationalists taking a stand against the police. And it was really deadly. And the reason I wrote the book is that 50 years later in 2016, when I was 
starting to hear a little bit about this because one of the secretaries in my firm, her father was one of the, the guys who had been badly wounded. He survived, but he, he was disabled for the rest of his life. Um, I was starting to look at it and on the TV came news from Dallas that a black nationalist slash Black Panther, former army veteran, went to Dallas, Black Lives Matter, and in response to uh, the killings, police killings of several African-American males, uh, began deliberately ambushing and killing as many white policemen as he could. Uh, and so my question for the book is, why are we still here 50 years later? And you know, what, what is it that caused it 50 years ago? And why are we still here? That really was the motivating question in my book. So like a lack of progress has been made, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Then the question was, you know, why, why, do I, why would somebody deliberately take up arms against the police? I mean, I understand grievances, but why would somebody want to kill policemen 50 years ago? And then why did it happen all over again, you know, in Dallas? And the answer to all of it lies in the Black freedom struggle in this country. And uh, amazingly enough for me, this book takes us back very deep into that, uh, that struggle. It starts at a church here in Cleveland in 1963. Malcolm or Martin Luther King comes here to raise money from, uh, directly from the jail in Birmingham, part of the Birmingham campaign. Mm -hmm. So that's one side of the Black freedom struggle. It's nonviolence, it's Christian, it's integrationist. Exactly a year later, Malcolm X comes to that same church here in Cleveland to give his most famous speech called The Ballot or the Bullet. And that's what I named the book after, Ballots and Bullets. He comes to Cleveland because he's breaking with the Nation of Islam. He's moving to a higher plane. He's saying that uh, everybody should cooperate in the Black freedom movement. And in the past, he had been very much an enemy of kings in a lot of ways. So you've got both ends of this spectrum. You've got nonviolence on one hand, Malcolm X. You've got armed self-defense. You've got a, a Black Muslim. Uh, and you've got somebody who really doesn't believe in integration. Um, so those are the two kind of ends of the spectrum of the Black Freedom Movement. And Malcolm X gave this speech that is something to listen to. And I play it for audiences, you know, segments of it. But he is essentially saying, look, we should all vote together uh, as, a, as, a, as a unit, whether you're, whether you're Baptist or Muslim or whatever, we all have the same enemy. We all face the same consequences. They don't hang you because you're Baptist. They hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. And he said, it's time for us to start exercising the ballot. But if it doesn't work, it's the ballot or the bullet. And he kept saying that over and over. This speech became very famous. First given here in Cleveland. And it's so amazing to me that it was given in the same pulpit where Dr. King had appeared a year earlier in his very famous you know, Birmingham campaign. So that kind of starts off the book. And from there, I take it to the struggle in Cleveland. Um, and the struggle in Cleveland starts with the ballot. Uh, there's a guy named Carl Stokes who is elected as mayor. He's the first African-American mayor of a major US city. He's elected in 1967 and great hope about that. He was on the cover of Newsweek Time. He was the Barack Obama of his day. He was very charismatic. He was a lawyer um, and you know, a new day seemed to be dawning after all this race violence that, that everybody experienced, including Cleveland. And five months later, Dr. King was assassinated. And so there's the beginning of the bullet. And one of the guys who was a black nationalist who believed in the Malcolm X philosophy, a guy named Ahmed Evans, um, took up arms a few months later 
uh, against the police in retaliation in part for King's killing, but in addition for just overall abuse that had been suffered for decades. Uh, in the process of all of this, Bobby Kennedy comes to Cleveland right after King is killed, gives a speech that is his best speech called the mindless menace of violence. And again, you listen to that 50 years later, it's completely relevant today. It's about gun violence and how awful it is and racism in America and how awful it is. And of course, King or uh, Kennedy will be the victim of gun violence two months later when he's assassinated. Um, and after that, uh, Vice President Hubert Humphrey comes to Cleveland, again, same stage that, that Kennedy had and says, look, we got to solve this problem by having a Marshall Plan for our cities. In other words, spend the kind of money we spent after World War II to have, you know, to rebuild Europe um, that was in tatters after the, the Second World War, do the same thing for our urban areas. And then it was not more than three weeks later that this shootout happens in Cleveland. That violence along with others lead to uh, the, ba the uh, backlash, the white backlash in particular that brings in Richard Nixon in 1968. That's the end of the war on poverty. And it's the beginning of locking up African-American males on, for war on drugs. Uh, and so for 50 years, we've been in that same cycle, that backlash cycle. And we're in a particularly virulent part of it right now with the Trump revolt. Yeah, it, we are. It, it is it is definitely uh, just a replay. Right. A similar backlash resulted in the election of Donald Trump, right? Yes. What do you yeah. what do you think, Jim? What do you think took place between uh, 1963 and MLK's speech there in Cleveland and in 1968 um, with, with the, the, the racial unrest and the riots and the violence that that was so prevalent from Watts to Detroit, Cleveland right. there. I mean, all across the country, from community yeah. to community, there was uh, stark violence. Right. What do you think was the animus between, I mean, obviously it was building, but was there a certain fuel to the fire? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that I really struggled with and finally figured out the answer. The After the Second World War in particular, there were great migrations of African-Americans from the South. Cleveland, for example, was considered little Alabama because, um, or Alabama North, because so many of the migrants were from Alabama. The problem that those migrants had as they came North to get jobs, you know, and get away from Jim Crow, is that they were stuck in ghettos. They couldn't move to white areas because of, of white violence that they would be faced with, because of deed restrictions, because banks would not give mortgages. Yeah. And, and so these ghettos built very quickly after the Second World War. Here in Cleveland, it was called Huff. And there was one of the riots was in Huff. Uh, Detroit, the same thing. Chicago, the same thing. Newark. These ghettos developed and they were horrific. They were bad sanitation, rats, overcrowding. Schools were second rate and overcrowded. It was just really bad living conditions. And so on the one hand, you got Martin Luther King, who's in the South, asking for the right to vote and for the right to sit at, at counters and those sorts of things. And those result in the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But it was all too little too late. Um, Watts happens two weeks after the 65 Voting Rights Act is passed. And white Americans are scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, we're making progress. And the blacks say, Making progress because we can vote is is not alleviating 
these really bad conditions and the poverty in these ghettos that were that were fueling all of these. What if you're on one side of the fence, you call them riots. And if you're on the African-American side, you call them rebellions. Yeah, and they really were rebellions. So it was too little too late. And that that had been building since after the Second World War. And it really did cause people to scratch their heads and say we're making progress. And so a lot of people in the north, including here in Cleveland and in Chicago, believed that the answer was not King's slow nonviolence. Um, they thought that, in a sense, he was collaborating with the enemy to keep people uh, in place, that the real answer was revolution. The real answer was taking up arms. The real reason, the real answer was armed self-defense when the police wouldn't protect you um, in your own in your own city. So. Um, Malcolm X had great followings in, in the Northern ghettos and, um, those resulted in the black nationalist movement and eventually the black Panthers. And that's what was exploding all across the country. And so there's always been kind of this tug of war and people have different opinions about what is the best approach. Should you be peaceful and hope that eventually you will get the rights and privileges that you deserve? Or should you fight back and demand your rights? So that's kind of been like a pattern that's going on. And you you still see in these communities that are disenfranchised through gerrymandering or segregation, right? Reports suggesting that public schools are more segregated now than 40 years ago. Like these problems still exist. And so there's still this kind of discussion about how to protest. What's the proper way to go about doing this, right? And and getting those rights. And so we're kind of seeing that parallel where um, Donald Trump was just elected and there's backlash whenever um, there is some progress made. Yeah, you know, it is the theme of my book is this that in 1968, before things really got out of hand, um, we were on the right track. So if you think about go back to January of 68, Dr. King was still alive, Bobby Kennedy was still alive, and Johnson had put together a commission after the horrible Detroit riots. I don't know if you guys saw that Detroit movie or not. Um, it's pretty good hmm. on the on the Detroit rebellion. Um, just came out a couple of years ago. In any event, Johnson puts together a commission, and this commission is called the Kerner Commission. It's it is the same type of commission as um, the Warren Commission that looked into the assassination of JFK. It's a presidential commission, and the Kerner Commission, headed by the governor of Illinois, Otto Kerner, was asked by the president, "Why are we have exactly your question, uh, Jesse? The you know the." Why are we having this violence? What, what accounts for it? It's a mostly white commission. It has the mayor of uh, New York City on it, Lindsay, and, and, and other prominent people, but mostly white. There are only two African-Americans, mostly male. There's one, only one woman. And yet they shock the country. And, and uh, with their report in February of 1968, in which they come out and say, look, the problems of the ghetto are, it's white racism that created the ghettos. It is white racism that sustains the ghettos. And it's until we deal with our, uh, the problem of white racism, we're not gonna solve the problem. And then they said exactly what Humphrey said when he came to Cleveland, which is we've got to spend a lot of money. And remember Johnson had started the war on poverty. Um, and Martin Luther King was, was going to bring the poor people's campaign to uh, Washington for anti-poverty program. Which has We've, just been revived. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. just been revived. And by the way, the Trump the Trump administration announced bizarrely a, a month ago that the war on poverty had been won and that we're ready to move on. Uh, <laughs> but, but the point of, point of what I'm making is in 1968, we were on the right track. We knew what the problem was. We diagnosed it exactly. We knew that it would take the kind of effort that we did in, in Europe to, to jobs, housing, good health care. We really needed to work on that stuff. We were on the way. And then, you know, the, the Greek tragedy of it all is that the race violence from that time caused the backlash that brought you Richard Nixon, who then said, I'm doing away with the war on poverty. He actually puts Donald Rumsfeld as the head of the Office of Economic Opportunity, yeah. which was the engine. And Rumsfeld had voted when he was in Congress against every piece of anti-poverty litigation. So we stopped the war on poverty right when it was, you know, it, it takes time for that to take hold. It doesn't happen right away. Uh, but that uh, the violence swallowed that remedy and really undid all of the good that was happening at that time. And so it was all that violence that caused us to, to for the last 50 years, think about anybody talking about the poor anymore. Do, we spend do, all our time obsessing about Donald Trump. Who talks about the poor in this country? Certainly not enough. Certainly not right. enough. Do you, would you categorize the violence as, this is something I struggle with because I'm, I am far more of a fiery character, more like a Malcolm X than a, than a Martin Luther King. Oh, oh, in my own doings. I don't know that I could be the passive nonviolent guy when faced with such oppression and subjugation. Personally, I don't know that I could do that. Um, But do you think the violence undid all of the progress and stopped all of the progress or do you think maybe it was it, it could be looked upon as kind of a two steps forward, one step back? Because without this kind of of pushback, mm-hmm. it is kind of a keeping blacks in their place. I don't know. What do you, what do you well, think? Well, here, 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 what here's what I would say. First of all, I, you know, I at, at the end of the book, I say there's never an excuse for violence. It never, in my view, it never creates anything. Bobby Kennedy, when he came to Cleveland, said. Um, you know, he called, he called, talked about the mindless menace of violence and a sniper is nothing but a coward and a mob is nothing but insanity. Um, I agree with all that. However, the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, unless blacks took up arms against the white police, the abuses were going to continue. And um, so there is one side of the ledger that you got to say is rational and not irrational on that on that front. Yeah. But here, but here's what I say. I, it, if you look at let me just give you the example here in Cleveland. Cleveland had put together after King was killed, they put together a program called Cleveland Now, um, which was an echo of freedom now uh, from King in the South. That was his slogan. We're not going to wait any longer. It's freedom now exclamation point. So they made Cleveland now exclamation point. And it was uh, it started off as a memorial fund for better housing, better jobs, better schools. Um, and it morphed because of the momentum at the time here in Cleveland. And we had an African-American mayor who had kept Cleveland quiet uh, after King was killed. Every place else went up in smoke. Carl Stokes walked the streets and and there wasn't violence. And so the business community really got behind this. The federal government got behind it. Within a month, it's a, now listen to this number, 1.2 billion with a B for Cleveland's ghettos over 10 years, beginning in 1968. 
Wow. You know, that's that's like somebody talking about a $20 billion program today. Yeah. It's it's huge. And that was the beginning of what would have been, in my view, an extremely successful campaign to finally end some of the problems that we were having. Uh, and that's it's that sort of commitment that was necessary. Now, here's the tragedy. And, and it is the Greek tragedy of America and of racism in America. Ahmed Evans used money from Cleveland now to buy the rifles and the ammunition to shoot the police. Yeah. And that was the end of Cleveland now, just as the overall violence was the end of the Great Society War on, on poverty and the lurching over into the war on drugs and putting as many African-American males in jail as we could. Um, and so it's just this total tragedy of, of, of things happening. My contention is if we if we stop spending a billion dollars on bunker busting bombs to kill Osama bin Laden and, and other things like that, we have the resources absolutely to, to attack things. And we're not doing it because our federal officials like Donald Trump and others blow the race whistle every time they want to get their base stoked up. Um, and it's just it's an awful cycle that is that we're more deeply in right now, frankly, in some ways than we were in 68. Look, look, I'm not I'm not advocating for violence. I'm just trying to understand it. And I'm if if, if I'm to put myself in the position of someone who's black, you know, from a generational standpoint, I mean, look, there's the white system has consistently subverted progress any way they could. So after during Reconstruction, after the Emancipation Proclamation, it, it, we didn't try to educate um, these illiter- illiterate former slaves, and they went to these draconian contracts, indentured servitude, uh, subsist- subsistence crops that they were allowed to grow on the land of the former masters. And then when they got the vote... Then it was, yeah, fuck you. You're gonna. There's gonna be a poll tax, or there's gonna be a test, or your grandfather had to have done whatever. So there's right. always these workarounds to subvert progress. I also think it's important to note that it isn't just that people didn't like Malcolm X and his methods. Martin Luther King Jr. was also viewed very negatively by the majority of the American public in the 60s. The March on Washington in 1963, most Americans at that time said that it was actually going to hurt their yeah. um, hurt their opportunity to get equal rights rather than be helpful. They disapproved of that. They were disapproving yeah. of the Freedom Riders. So even these other methods, there was still this disapproval that you see now, like when the NFL players are kneeling, that's considered not okay. So right. it does kind of enter into this territory of like, well, what method is okay? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Look, certainly outright violence. It crosses the line from, you know, basic civil disobedience to something else. So it's not great. But I do think in some ways, under certain circumstances, it does spur um, change. Yeah, there's I start the book with a guy named Robert Franklin Williams. Okay, so Robert Williams was a guy in North Carolina who had been a Marine during the Second World War. He came back to his town in North Carolina, and it was a real clan infested town. And every now and then the clan would come through and hold rallies and things like that. And there was a black part of the town. Um, Robert Franklin was uh, Williams was in that part of the town. 
um, he decided that he was going to make an application to the National Rifle Association to get rifles and form a rifle club so that they could protect themselves from Klan violence. Um, but he had to do it under pretenses that they were white, where he tried to make people sound like they were white. And they got a charter from the uh, National Rifle Association, got guns. And um, he had confrontations with people in his small town in North Carolina that eventually um, he was you know, threatened with being lynched and he escaped and ended up in all places of Cuba, where he became kind of pretty well known as a um, a guy who was a, uh, um, involved with Castro, and then eventually he goes to Vietnam, and there's actually pictures of him in China with Mao. Hmm. It's an amazing character. So I started the book with him because he wrote a book back in 1962 called Negroes with Guns. And his point was very simple. He was not advocating violence. He was all self-defense, but that he said if, if blacks have guns, then it's even Stephen. And that it occurred to him that that was the that was the way to get real true power. And that was the way to get real true respect was to actually have guns and be willing to use them in the event you're attacked. What's uh, interesting about that is that this is the this scenario you're painting right now terrifies conservative white America. Mm-hmm. Right. However, right. it's the same narrative mm-hmm. that they use, the same excuse they use right. for wanting to own guns on mass mm-hmm. and i'm i'm pro second amendment i'm i have no problem w- with it. It, it but it's the same exact type of attitude that that these gun nuts mm-hmm. that they use well i want to be able to defend myself and my family and when i'm attacked or when the government uh, oversteps me. when it oversteps its bounds i mm-hmm. need to be able to protect me and mine that's allowed for them because of the color of their skin and their in-group. Uh, yep. It's scary when it's the the the, oh, the black people. Yeah, Negroes with Guns was what he deliberately named the uh, the book because huh. he wanted he wanted to make that point, you know. And throughout this book, as I write, there there Malcolm X again comes to Cleveland and says it's the ballot or the bullet. And his point is again, he's not advocating violence; he's advocating armed self-defense. That if we you know, if we punch, if somebody punches in the in the nose, you get you got to be able to punch them back. You don't just sit there as King does and let them beat the hell out of you to show how bad they are. Um, you know, you you punch them back. And so, a lot of people who followed Malcolm X believed that that was much more effective way to deal with the freedom movement than uh, than the nonviolence that the King campaigns that King was involved in. So, so um, in 1968, when this attack happened in Cleveland. Right. Um, did they openly or um, with one another, did they use that speech of Malcolm X as the, the motivation, as the justification for what they were doing? Yeah, I think the the guy who uh, was the leader, this guy Fred Ahmed Evans, was at the speech that Malcolm X gave here in Cleveland, the ballot or the bullet. And he became a, what's called a black nationalist. And Malcolm X's point is, Look, look around the world at what's going on. After the Second World War, there are freedom movements everywhere among people of color uh, who vastly outnumber the white uh, people in this world. Uh, In Asia, he said, you know, freedom movements, they were getting their freedom through nationalism, not by singing We Shall Overcome, as he says in this speech. Look at Africa. They were getting their freedom by nationalism. They're throwing off the colonial systems. How do you throw off a colonial systems? 
you get you, urban guerrilla warfare. It's guerrilla warfare that is that that caused the victories in these other, but it's nationalism too. And what he said is the United States did not have a colony in Africa. They brought the colony here and installed it principally in the South. And so that's black, that's what that's the definition of black nationalism, that this is that this is a a uh, group of people who should see themselves as nationalists and that they should, if necessary, take up arms to defend themselves and if necessary, even engage in guerrilla warfare uh, to uh, to stop you know attacks on them. Hmm. So that's that Fred Ahmed Evans was in that at that speech. He becomes the leader of one of the black nationalist group here. When King comes here to help get Carl Stokes elected and in 67, that was a big part of King's transformation. He'd moved out of the South into the North, and he comes to Cleveland to support Carl Stokes. Uh, he's here almost every week um, to, to get people registered to vote and so forth. Um, he meets with Ahmed Evans. I've got plenty of pictures of King with Fred Ahmed Evans because he wants to make his nonviolence you know, acceptable to even the militants. Let's vote. Let's see if we can change things by the vote, by the ballot. And uh, he does engage with Fred Evans. The problem is when King gets killed, Evans said, see, I told you he was a fool. Hmm. Um, you know, he just got gunned down like a dog. And this is what's going to happen to us. And he then, you know, begins assembling his own rifles. And he wants to start a guerrilla warfare with the police to push back and say, you're not going to push us anymore and you're not going to, you're not going to abuse us. You're not going to beat us up. You're not going to arrest us for nothing. Um, and you know, we're going to establish ourselves. So it really does come out of the violence and out of King's assassination and, you know, a series of things that lead to this, but he's a black nationalist in the Malcolm X mold. You know, it seems to me and tell me what you think that there's, there's somewhat of a symbiosis between these two philosophies of, of, Nonviolent resistance and you know violent, you know armed armed self defense. Yeah, armed self defense. So uh, it kind of gives the white power structure kind of a choice. Like, oh shit, what are we gonna do here? We got to take a side. Let's side with and give. So I think it does further progress Mm -hmm. when you've got these two stark choices to make. Yeah, and it's the obvious choice would be to go. So I think it does further the cause of liberation. Um, well, it's given yeah, the it's, two yeah, without without one yeah. one or the other, nothing really gets done. But if you have both there, I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's, you know, Jesse, it's as if you've read my book or listened to the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, and by the way, the podcast has Malcolm X's speech in there. It's beautiful, beautiful recording. Right, we're for like, sure going to check it out. Yeah, but. Um, what happens right before Malcolm X is assassinated? Now, uh, to give you the chronology, he comes to Cleveland on in April third, nineteen sixty four. So that's that's exactly a year after King came from his Birmingham campaign, and he makes his speech, "The Ballad of the Bullet." He will not live out the year. He will be assassinated in New York City on February twenty fifth, nineteen sixty five. Uh, and Watts will then happen that summer, and okay, not so, not by whites, by the way, for the just no, for the edification no. of the audience. He was killed right. by the Nation of Islam. Yeah, by the Nation of Islam. But the other, the other thing we haven't talked about is the FBI influence on all this. There were all sorts of uh, informants within uh, Malcolm X's group, and police informants, FBI informants, who knew this was coming and let it happen. Yeah, sure. Um, so, but yeah, it was the Nation of Islam who 
he had he had uh, disrespected uh, Elijah Muhammad and um, openly was you know feuding with him, and so they come and kill him at the um, at a, a place where he spoke in Harlem regularly uh, on a Sunday with his with his wife and his and his children there too. I mean, it's an awful scene, um, and when he is uh, so th that happens, but he. Malcolm X actually goes to Selma three three weeks before that, before he's killed, and he he goes there as a part of he had been he'd gone down to speak at the at Tuskegee Institute, and then he he made his way over to Selma where King was working on that part of his campaign, the Selma campaign. King was actually in jail, but Coretta Scott King was there, and Malcolm X came to see her because he was in jail, and said, "I am here to show them what happens." if they don't pay attention to nonviolence. So exactly your point, he understood that, um, you know, if you have somebody in the backdrop that says, if you don't start making yeah. reforms, yeah. Um, this is what you're gonna face. And he actually said those words to Coretta Scott King three weeks before he was killed. It's just so fascinating that there's still a significant portion of the population, the white population, that doesn't like the peaceful protests still. Um, like Jesse was saying, where if you're given a choice, it's like they're saying, well, no, I don't want any of it, right? Yeah, they're provocateurs in every, you know, the white nationalists uh, themselves here in this country are provocateurs, as we saw in Charlottesville and so forth. And those people want to get into a fight and they want to make their point through violence. Um, and you know, the problem is that you, you call them provocateurs. I call them dicks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's a different way. Yeah. Uh, but what, what, what is important, I think is that we've lost sight of what, what we need to do to cure racism. We, we need to apply a lot of money and we yes. have the money to do it. If we'd stop spending stupid money on defense. Secondly, it all starts gotta, with the pocketbook. It all starts with poverty. Yeah. And let me tell you something else that I now am focused on very intently in most of my talks about this book. Um, and I'm giving them in black churches and at the City Club of Cleveland where Bobby Kennedy spoke I'm uh, all around. In April of 2018, uh, the National Geographic magazine came out with this issue on race. It was very controversial. It was very courageous. The woman who is the editor of National Geographic used to be the editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. So everything in this whole story comes out of Cleveland. Um, she was the first female editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer and then went and became the first female editor of National Geographic. The race issue in 2018 had on its cover two, two little girls who were identical twins. One of them's black, one of them's white. Uh, and then the the inside of it is talking about how. Wait, wait, wait. All, what do you mean by that? They were I, read the issue and take a look at the cover. One one has dark skin and the other has has light skin, but they are identical twins. Oh, OK, OK. But racially, so, racially, they're they're both little black girls. Uh, You're just talking about well, skin color. Here's, let, let me get to the point. Okay. Here's the point <laughs> of what of what of what the thing is about. And to me, this is revolutionary. Because of in, uh, us understanding all our DNA, because of all the scientific study of DNA, human DNA, and testing it all around the world, what they have found, they said, are two great truths. The first is that we're all the same. We're all from one family. Some people have darker skin, some people have lighter skin, but we are closer to each other in DNA across all humanity 
than chips, chimps are within Africa in a, you know, in a small area. We are all the same. And so they, what their point is race is a myth. Race is something that's made, been made up to divide us. The fact of the matter is we're all human beings and we're all from one family. And they said the second great truth is that all people alive today are Africans. Um, so we are all Africans. We are all one family. We, the, what science is telling us is that all of this dividing us by race is, is, is simply made up. Uh, and it goes back to a lot of this um, crap that was going around in the 20s where people like Hitler were trying to you know, talk about race and the differences between the size of skulls and all that sort of stuff. That was really bad science. Uh, and you know that eugenic stuff, all of that stuff has infected all of our minds. And the fact of the matter is we now know through science that there's no difference between me and uh, an African-American here in Cleveland uh, who lives in the ghetto. We are, we are from the same family. We're uh, almost identical from a DNA perspective. So race is made up is their whole point. And I think that is fantastic because that's a way for us to start changing our perspectives, not just that we want to do it because we want to be good people, but that scientifically there's no such thing. Yeah. Well, it's... Uh, You'll have to get people to care about science first. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. That's a good <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But isn't that spectacular? I mean, it really is. It's an amazing thing and, and, and you know, great for the National Geographic to do that. It's really, what it's, it's worth reading that issue but it also goes back to this point that, you know, we, we really have to change our perspectives and we really have to apply a lot of resources to our urban areas to really regain where we were 50 years ago. We were on the right track. Yeah. Now, now it's time to hit the reset button. And as a part of what we need to do, in addition to getting uh, rid of um, idiots like Trump in the presidency is to, you know, move to a time when we really start talking about real issues and how to how to address them. I don't know. I, I think I have to push back a little bit and say that I think Space Force is a real good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny because uh, as I look back and you look at, you know, what, what happened in uh, the Kennedy time, you know, John Kennedy came into office in 1960. He did it on the backs of the South that was very racist at the time. And at you know, the time, <laughs> yeah, still pretty racist, uh, Jim. Still yeah. pretty racist. <laughs> but I mean, it was really it was the party of racism. In, yeah. In in you know in the in the large sense that it was out of the South and slavery and so forth. And you know he Johnson then begins to try to change things, and um, that Kennedy wasn't able to do. And Kennedy's assassination helps get the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed and helps to change some things. But then it's really his brother, Bobby Kennedy, who begins to really move away from uh, racism into the common plight of the poor and, and humanity. And he's the guy that convinces a young lawyer in Mississippi named Marion Wright, whose name is Marion Wright Edelman today, to convince King to, to put together the Poor People's Campaign. And so both King and Kennedy were on the road to trying to solve the problems of urban areas through this idea of addressing uh, the poor through anti-poverty programs. 
And, uh, you know, both of them were assassinated uh, within a couple months of each other. Well, let me let me ask you this. How it's an easy, simple question to answer. <laughs> yeah. Can you hear the not going to be that way? Um, so how do we how do we create in our society on a macro sense since there's always a white lash and, and like we we snap uh, to the to the right in 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 an answer to 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 Johnson and then we snap to the right as an answer to to Barack Obama how do we create or is it even possible to create a snap um back to the left as an answer to Donald Trump to reason to to sanity yeah I tell you this, I, I don't have all the answers on this, but I do have one thing that I am doing as a lawyer, and that is because I wrote this book and it really changed me in many ways. I'm a New Deal, you know, a, a grandson of the New Deal, uh, a son of the Great Society. You know, I believe in all of that. I'm uh, I'm somebody from that era, uh, and yet um, I I suffer from what everybody is now referring to as implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we have not addressed that part of our brains. Our brains are set up and there's John Dean and I teach this actually. Um, there's a great book called thinking fast and slow. Our brains work very fast on a lot of things like emotion and reaction and things like that in a different part of our brain. That is the slow thinking, analytical, rational front lobe part of our brain. They're two different parts and they work together. The fast moving part is the part when we're walking down the street and we see a kid with a hoodie, a black kid, we get, we get fearful. We have, we, you know, the front part of our brain can say, don't feel that way. There's no reason to feel that way. Um, but the, the uh, fast thinking part of our brain influences what the, what the slow thinking part of our brain thinks and the analytical side thinks. And so we're all so impacted by that. And I think we've got to, you know, the, the good news is everybody says you can train people out of implicit bias, but you have to you have to know what you're doing and how you're doing that training. But we really have to, you know, as Americans, we've lived in a country that, you know, had one of the greatest slave empires in the whole world. And, you know, we've lived with this for 400 years. And so, you know, we all need to um, to deal with it in a very deep way through changing, you know, the way our minds work. Um, and it's just, it's going to take time, but it's going to take real, you know, real thinking about it and real addressing the real issues as opposed to saying, well, I'm a liberal, I'm not a racist. Well, if you're an American, you're a racist, you can't help it. You, you know, you grew up in America. That's, you're a racist. You can't help it. I like how you, I like how you phrase that. The, 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 the empire of slavery, a slave empire, well, really, yeah. it has created a system of poverty that that we we must address at some point. But even we're, I mean, we're still reluctant to do that. You had Philip Astlin, the um, UN reporter on extreme poverty and human rights. He released that report about poverty in the United States. Nikki Haley attacked him. Um, Donald Trump attacked him. They don't want to hear it. No one wants to hear that. They're like, no, we live in America. This country is great. There's no one living in poverty here. Everyone has the opportunity to go out and work a fantastic career at McDonald's and have everything that they want and achieve the American dream by working a minimum wage job. And it's just like this resistance to addressing the issue of poverty. And that was something that was important about the poor 
people's campaign coming back uh, with the pastor Barber, Reverend Barber. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, those days of protest that they had and the movement to unite the poor. Um, and I, I don't know if they're going to continue that work or what the result of that work will be, but it seems like a focus on poverty um, is important and we need to get back to that place. Well, yeah, th exactly. thankfully, thankfully, we have politicians like Bernie Sanders and up and comers like that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We're talking about the wealth gap. We're talking about uh, the disparity between the super wealthy and the and the super poor. I mean, it's I think we're on the verge of something great happening. Yeah. Yeah. And let me say this. You, you ask, how do you change in America? You change by getting younger. Um, the fact of the matter is, as I look at my my own kids um, you know, they grew up and they had programming in their high school about race relations that was very intense and very deep and I think helpful in, in you know, alleviating um, their own problems of dealing with racism. But think about one thing, you know, how quickly the change happened with respect to gay rights yeah. uh, and gay, gay marriage. That sure. happened virtually overnight. And, you know, as you look at younger people and talk to them about people who are gay, it is no big deal to them. Their, their fast thinking brain doesn't revolt from that concept as opposed to somebody who's 60 or 70 years old who grew up where, you know, it was something terrible to be gay. Um, so, you know, things change, but they change by people getting younger and by uh, the older people <laughs> dying off, frankly. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's changed through attrition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. And there's no there's no coincidence that, you know, Donald Trump is 70 years old and um, has all this bullshit uh, racism that he engages in. Are you sure uh, he's not a six year old? <laughs> Are you yeah. sure? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. a perfect listen. That's a perfect segue because we want to talk to you a little bit about what in the F is going on right now. Uh, I don't think I've ever used the letter F. Yeah, that's, to, to that say, was an interesting choice that you made. I'm just being respectful of the guest. Yeah, well, like yeah. we said, the last time we talked to you, Jim, that was like April. And yep. so much has happened since then, <laughs> including, yep. by the way, Donald Trump tweeting and attacking your uh, friend and colleague, John Dean. Right, calling him a rat. Yeah, calling him a rat. Um, right. So things are really heating up over there. Yeah, it, it, John and I just did a program in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, and I'm in touch with him almost daily about, you know, what's been going on. It's interesting. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Lanny Davis, who represents Michael Cohen, reached out to John. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was, there was an article about how he's been talking to him about how did he face this. And frankly, I think John talking to Lanny, they, they knew each other, but it, it's all about trying to get Michael Cohen's head straight about what he needed to do. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that was helpful actually with Michael Cohen to look at John and see his example and see that, you know, there's, you, you'll get through this somehow you'll get through it. But the only way to get through it is to tell the whole truth, come clean, go plead, you know, all the things that are going on right now with Michael Cohen. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, it's no coincidence that Trump is calling Dean a rat because I think he realizes that Michael Cohen is probably looking what is he? Sam, it's like it's example. like Donald. It's like Donald Trump has taken a page out of G. Gordon Liddy's playbook on maligning and demonizing and vilifying John Dean. Yeah, um, we we uh, we both spoke with the uh, Plain Dealer here in town uh, this week, and there was an article they published with the two of us talking about this whole thing. And what what I said was, you know, John is not 
what I said was Trump doesn't understand his Watergate history. He never has. Um, when John went to prosecutors, he told everybody he was going to prosecutors. Just he like told just he like his getting, current White House counsel, Don McGahn. Right. Exactly. And uh, the White House knew it, and they initially encouraged him, just like they encouraged Don McCann in the White House to cooperate. What they didn't reckon on was that Dean wasn't going to continue to lie. And um, that as soon as they started to figure out he was telling the full truth about what had happened, you know, they started attacking him. And what do they say? They say he's a liar. Yeah. They say he's a rat. They say he's doing this for his own immunity. Everything you're going to see being thrown at, at Michael Cohen um, was thrown at Dean. And the problem that Dean had was when he testified in June of 73, he didn't know there was a taping system. He didn't know it. So he was being extremely courageous and saying, I told the president there was a cancer on his presidency, et cetera. And from his testimony, one little piece of it led investigators to ask the White House, do you have a taping system? Because there was one time he thought he was being taped. He didn't think he was being taped on every conversation. But one time when Nixon got up and walked to the other side of the room and leaned over and started whispering, um, he said, wait a minute, he's, he's <laughs> you know, he's he's uh, taping me. That led the investigators to a guy named Alexander Butterfield, who then after a three hour session was finally asked the question directly, well, does, is there a, does Nixon tape any? Is John Dean right? And he said, I'm sorry you asked that question. He taped all his conversations. Yeah. So then for a whole year, there was a court battle to get those tapes from Nixon. During that year, uh, it was it was John Dean's word against Nixon. And then when the tapes came out a year later, so he suffered the slings from the White House for an entire year. There was the Saturday Night Massacre happened because uh, uh, Archibald Cox wouldn't enter into a compromise agreement about the tapes with Nixon. So he fired him. And that led to you know claims for impeachment. And then in the summer of 74, a year later, after being attacked relentlessly by the White House, the tapes came out and they showed that John Dean was uh, not only telling the whole story, but almost word for word. His memory was incredibly uh, accurate about exactly what had happened and what he had said to Nixon. And so two years, two weeks later, Nixon resigns and John Dean goes down in history as someone who um, played a heroic role. So one part that we wanted to talk about was your prediction um, that you made in April on the show, <laughs> which yep. we're not we're not far along enough yet, I think, because your prediction involved the Democrats taking the House and yep. uh, then starting the articles of impeachment and going through the process. And what we didn't know in April that we know now is the Michael Cohen element now where Michael Cohen has implicated Trump in the hush money scheme. Yep. And the focus in April really was on the Russia collusion. Yeah, and Mueller. Right. And right. this Michael Cohen situation is a new added variable, especially with the news this morning that the Trump organization CFO is now granted immunity. Alan so, Weisselberg. Yeah. So just every breaking news alert we get, it just gets uh, more convoluted. <laughs> but yeah. with the addition of the Michael Cohen news, does that change your prediction at all? Yeah, no, it doesn't. Here's, I think what I actually said towards the end of that prediction is that I predicted once the children got involved. That is what in you Je said, yeah. In, in Jeopardy, that that my prediction was that he would work out a deal to resign, to save himself and especially his kids from going to jail. And, you know, the news this morning is that the state of New York is going after the foundation 
uh, you know, Donald Trump is uh, junior is in the is in the crosshairs now. Yeah. They're in the crosshairs and state stuff that he can't pardon about. It's just getting more and more messy for them. And the guy who knows a lot about the children and what they did and what Don Jr. did is Michael Cohen. So I still stand by my prediction that um, if the House changes, and I hope it does in November, that the pressure will exponentially increase uh, and calls for impeachment will uh, will be strong and uh, Trump will see his own children in real legal jeopardy of going to jail for long periods of time. He'll probably pardon them and work out a deal to get out of office. That's still my prediction. It is. And I, I, I still believe that there's maybe a path forward for indicting a sitting president because it's only the, the office of, of legal – it's, you know, it's not uh, constitutional – Right. Um, but that's you know that's a, a different debate, and I certainly wouldn't want to have it with an actual lawyer. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and I've actually I've actually read those uh, Office of Legal Counsel memos. One was done in the Nixon era, yeah. by, and one was done in the Clinton era. I've read them both. I've also read the criticisms of them by scholars, and uh, there is an argument to make that that is uh, policy that is not. It's it isn't. You're right. It's not constitutionally based. It's kind of practical based that the, the, this is one officer running one branch of the government. So it would be too distracting to have them go through criminal um, proceedings. But the simple answer to that that most of the scholars make is that's why we have the 25th Amendment that says if if a president becomes incapacitated, that the vice president can take over yeah. um, and just, you know, exercise the 25th Amendment. I, uh, so. I, I wonder, though, it, it kind of adds a different element, um, kind of a a bummer element that because he does face so many um, charges and criminal, you know, uh, implications here that really the only thing keeping him from prosecution is being goddamn president, because if he quits, then he's subject to prosecution. Uh, That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Well, and the same thing happened with Nixon. That's why Ford had to pardon him. Yeah. Um, So, you know, the, the issue is going to be if it gets to this. Um, and by the way, um, the Democrats are right today to not be calling for impeachment today, even though he's now in a co-conspirator, unindicted co-conspirator. From a with, strategy standpoint, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Because this thing has to build. It has to be not just, you know, one thing. It's got to be like a hurricane. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not going to be hard to get to a hurricane with Donald, Donald Trump, just the way he <laughs> Just look at the just look at the time covers, and you see yeah. a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be hard to get there, but you got to have that because you know this significant portion of people who deny everything about him and who are with bitter enders is what I would call them. Um, those people are still a pretty big uh, part of the population, sure. and that has to be eroded to a manageable area for this to work. Because otherwise, you really will have um, potential chaos with something like that. Yeah. Well, that is fantastic. We we love having you on, Jim. You are a uh, a wealth of knowledge and yes. um, understanding of, of both history and where we currently stand and being able to mel- meld those two together. That For is sure. beautiful. I would encourage yeah. everybody to go out and pick up your book, Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968, Cleveland. It is out now. You can go to ballotsandbullets.com. I'm sure it's available on the Amazon. It is. Uh, go check yeah. out that. Go check out the podcast, which is done in um, coordination with the NBC affiliate uh, WKYC in Cleveland. 
It's also called Ballots and Bullets, and it's on Apple Podcasts. Yep. It's on SoundCloud. Um, everywhere you can get podcasts. Follow Jim on Twitter, at Jim Robinalt. And uh, anything else going on? No, that's it. I, you know, I appreciate you guys. I told you my son, John, is the one who turned me on to you. And he loves your stuff. He listens to you religiously. So I appreciate what you're doing for him. No, I don't know if I like the religiously part. but uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. He, he follows you faithfully. That, that is fine. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Jim. We appreciate your time. And uh, if you got anything else going on, let us know. We'd love to have you back on. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Great. Thank you all. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So my takeaway is, aside from the fact that I need to be the one who asks the question about what people have changed their minds about, since you can't remember to do it. (laughs) I never remember. um, That we need to have him on like every five months or something to get a new prediction of how things are going to go. Yeah. Until Trump is in handcuffs or, you know. Yeah, also he Eating has Cheetos at in at the top of Trump Tower yeah. rather than in the White House. Yeah, and I mean Jim can't really give us the full inside scoop, right? But he has the inside scoop and maybe he could do like a tiny bit of leaking every once yeah, in a while. The leak the leak fest. Yeah. On the I doubt it with Dollamore. That would be nice. Also, what would be nice is if they got uh, old John Dean to call into the number and say that he never listens to the show <laughs> as a drop. That would be great. That would be beautiful. And true. It would, <laughs> it be, would be very true. It would be a factual one. Yeah. That would be nice. Well, that is awesome. Thank you for joining us. Listen, if you like what we do, both regular numbered episodes, uh, the news and the comment but also the bonus episodes that we bring to you. This is all brought to you by our Patreon supporters and our PayPal uh, supporters, people who who financially support the show on a monthly basis. This is how we're able to do what we do, and we would love to have you join that um, support network. You can go to dollamore.com slash Patreon. I tell you what, just go to dollamore.com on the left-hand side of the page. There's all kinds of ways to support the show. We also graciously accept Apple podcast reviews of the show. Hmm? What do you think? We do. I remember to say that sometimes. Yeah, you do. (laughs) So anyway, we love your questions. We would love your communication. Help us move the conversation forward. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email voice memos from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. We love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you next time. For Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It.